Happy Easter. Hopefully, uh, the morning has gone well for you, and uh, you've been encouraged this Easter. And I hope that as we're just a part of Christ's church this morning, that we experience the glory of Easter, which is in the resurrection of Jesus. That's what we're celebrating. And we actually have this day, like every other Sunday, to share specifically in the resurrected Christ. But more than that, today is a day where we actually remember the fact that Jesus did die for our sin and that he rose again. And that's the joy that we have in Easter. It's the glory of Easter is a resurrected Savior. So this morning we're going to be looking at 1 John. But I I just want you to think about for a minute, just uh, maybe even the state of our own culture. If you think about our own culture for a minute, we, we hear this terminology today about cancel culture. It's kind of the, the new common theme. We hear it everywhere. It's, it's the thing that we hear talked about. It's, it's in the news. It's, it's all over the place. And when you think about cancel culture, what is really being said in that is absolutely 100% no grace, no mercy. It is the epitome of a culture void of mercy and void of grace. That's what it is. A culture that claims tolerance, who actually shows not tolerance, but judgment. And so when we understand that, when we actually understand what's really being said in cancel culture, what we're saying is we're saying a lack of mercy and a lack of grace that reigns in and throughout our own culture. That's what we're saying. A culture that loves to say that it's it's merciful and it's tolerant and relativism reigns. And yet, it's a culture that's not full of second chances. It's a one-and-done attitude, is it not? Somebody says the wrong thing, they're pushed out. Somebody does the wrong thing, they're pushed out. Unless, unless there's some sort of economic or personal, maybe social or political benefit to giving a second chance. But the second chance is always conditional. Well, the beauty of the resurrection is that we're all in need of second chances. That every single one of us is in need of a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance and a fifth chance. And rather than God canceling us out because we walked in sin, He goes to the cross on our behalf and rises again, defeating the power of sin and death and displays in one of the greatest acts or the greatest act ever his complete mercy and grace towards his creation. That's the gospel in a nutshell. That's what we celebrate this morning. Is a God of grace and a God of mercy who actually took our penalty, our sin, and placed it upon himself. He substituted himself for us. 
And so as we think about that in our own culture, in the world that we live in, Easter is a day of complete hope. It's a day that reminds us of the work that Jesus has done on behalf of each of us. And the question is how we're going to respond to that work. He's given you a gift. He's given me a gift. And how are we going to respond to that grace? So this morning we're going to dive into 1 John chapter 2. And we're going to see in reality that rather than standing alone, we have someone who stands with us. Ever been in a situation where you know that either you were completely wrong, or maybe you were even right, but you felt alone as you tried to to work through those things? Ever felt like you just wanted somebody to be on your side? Well, what we're going to talk about this morning is that through the resurrection, we have one who is standing with us on our side, advocating for us every single day for the life of the believer. So let's read this passage together. It's in 1 John. We're looking at chapter 2. And we're going to start in verse 1 and just go through verse 6. And this is what it says. It says, My little children... I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Let's go ahead and stand if you're able to this morning. If you're not, it's okay. Stay where you're at. And it's okay as well. It says, But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. And as we celebrate this Easter day, this day that reminds us of your resurrection, reminds us that you overcame sin and death. Father, may you speak to our hearts. May we have ears to hear. May we have eyes to see your truth. May we rejoice fully in knowing that you are a God of grace and mercy who has displayed your love towards us through the work of the cross. And may we respond to your gospel this morning with humility and submission. And we ask this in your name. Amen. At the heart of our passage this morning, is the idea that the resurrection allows us to experience joy of Christ as our redeeming and faithful advocate. 
the resurrection allows us to experience the joy of Christ as our redeeming and faithful advocate. The resurrection provides joy through our advocate. It's as simple as that. That's what he's driving at in this passage, is that the resurrection leads to joy through the advocate of Christ. One of the things that we've seen over the last year has been a rise in despondency and despair. The more isolated people have become, the more despair increases, a sense of despondency, a sense of depression, a sense of discouragement. Well, the truth is we have one that is advocating on our behalf, and that is Jesus Christ. For the believer, we're told in this passage that it is Christ who is advocating with the Father. We're not alone. And we're to find joy in the work of Christ. As Jesus took his last breath on the cross, as revealed in John 19, 21, Jesus said, it's finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. However, this is not the end of the story. Jesus rose on the third day, not only paying the rightful price for our sin, but overcoming the power of sin and death through the resurrection. Jesus gave himself as the rightful penalty for sin. Now in 1 John 1, 7, John tells us, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. He goes on in verses 9 through 10, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. This brings us to our passage this morning in chapter 2. Where John begins by saying, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So there's a tension here that exists. While God's desire for us is not to sin, the reality of our flesh is that we will sin. But the beauty of the resurrection is that all is not lost. Because Christ is the one who advocates to the Father on our behalf before we ever confess for the life of the believer. You see, John is actually writing this passage to the believer. That's why he's calling you my little children. That's what he's saying. He's saying, for those who have professed a faith in Jesus Christ, this is for you. But for those who haven't professed in Christ, what he's saying is, is you too have an opportunity for the same advocate in Jesus Christ. That Christ is not only your Savior, but He is ongoing, working on your behalf. So, what does it really mean to be an advocate then? What does this mean that Jesus is an advocate? What it's actually speaking of here in this passage is the idea of a helper and defender. 
Christ is our ongoing advocate, which means he's our ongoing helper and defender before the Father. Now, the word that's used here is the word paraclete in Greek. And that word is actually used many other times in Scripture. It's the only time it's used here to refer to Jesus as sitting at the right hand of the Father. But it is the same word that's used as helper when it refers to the Holy Spirit. So we have an advocate that sits at the right hand of God in the Son, Jesus Christ, and we have an advocate who is working our behalf, who indwells us in the life of the believer through the Holy Spirit. Now, the beauty is, is it's kind of the idea of a legal connotation. It's carrying with it this idea of one who aids or, or one who comes alongside. And the idea in this picture of an advocate is this advocate would normally go before a judge. And, and the beauty of this is that he goes before the judge and they plead on the behalf or plead on the innocence of the individual. Now, if you've ever been to a court, that's an interesting thing. Is it not that you sit in a court setting, whether you've been in, in a jury or even when if you've been yourself in court? And, and the, the reality is, this, is trying to plead innocence. Right? It's difficult. And so somebody comes alongside, and if they know that you're innocent, they're going to plead your innocence. Well, this is different. Jesus isn't pleading your innocence. He's actually pleading his innocence. He's actually pleading his sacrifice. But he's going on behalf of, of you, and he's pleading his innocence. He's saying to the Father, I have already offered up my life, and this person has applied his grace or my grace through faith. So for the person who has put their faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus is applying that grace not only once in the finality of their salvation, but again over and over in the face of an accuser. And who would that accuser be? Satan himself. We're told in Revelation 12:10, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. For the life of the believer, when somebody comes in and actually is is looking and you feel like, gosh, I'm just done, I have nothing else. How will I ever walk in righteousness? I keep being reminded of my past sin and it's overwhelming me. God could never ever redeem me. Jesus is saying, I have. I already have. It's done. It is finished. Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, he, that is Christ, is able to save the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession with them. Jesus is constantly in relationship and fellowship with the Father, and he is constantly interceding on our behalf. He is constantly advocating on our behalf. It's easy sometimes to, as followers of Christ, to feel like I've sinned, I am useless in the kingdom of God. 
That's an accuser. There's a difference between conviction and accusation. Conviction is the Spirit saying, hey, listen, you need to turn and repent and follow me. Accusation says, listen, you're too far gone. There is no hope. God's sacrifice is not for you. No one is too far gone. There isn't a thing in this world too far or too outlandish that makes you too far gone in the face of Christ. The consequences might be severe for past choices, but there is nothing that is too far gone for the grace of God to be offered to you. He has already offered it to you. And the beauty of it is, is no matter how bad or vile you think your sin is, God says that all sin is bad and vile. We are all in need of His grace. Warren Wiersbe puts it this way, he says, Christ is our representative. He defends us at the Father's throne. Satan may stand there as the accuser of the brethren, but Christ stands there as our advocate. He pleads on our behalf. Continuing forgiveness in response to his intercession is God's answer to our sinfulness. It's been finished. Romans 8, 31 through 34 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. That's exciting. We have a Savior who is making intercession for us all the time before we even confess sin because we have confessed Him as Lord. Now as we move forward into our passage this morning, we're told in John, 1 John 1, 4, we're told the reason for why John is writing this epistle, this letter, and it says, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So his point in actually telling us about the advocate that we have in Jesus Christ is actually so that our joy may be, may be, may be complete. It's easy at times to lose sight of the fact that what God is desiring is for us to be joyful about the relationship that we have with Jesus. And to be joyful about the work that he's doing. So what we see here then is that the joy of Christ as our advocate actually is revealed in three ways. The first is that it's based on his righteousness, not our own. Notice the title that is given. It says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So it's based on his righteousness. His advocacy for us is based on his righteousness, not our righteousness. It's Him. He is the one that's qualified to go before the Father as our advocate. It's He's the one that is actually qualified to go to the cross on our behalf. What was needed was a perfect and righteous sacrifice. 
Jesus, 100% God and 100% man, God in flesh, goes to the cross on our behalf. And he goes because he lived a sinless and perfect life. What was needed was a human sacrifice that was living out perfectly the law of God. And Jesus is that one. You see, your salvation has nothing to do with your righteousness, but has everything to do with Jesus' righteousness. That ought to make us joyful. Because I suck at things, don't you sometimes? Isn't it great to know that it is based upon Jesus' righteousness, not our own? That's why we can actually go and realize that there's an advocate pleading our behalf, even when we feel unworthy, because Christ is saying, of course you sinned, yes, you're guilty, but I am not, and I took your punishment. It's as if in the court of law you were to have an attorney that was standing with you and his father was the judge and the judge pronounces sentence and says guilty as charged. Tim, you're completely guilty. I'm sentencing you to life, but actually I'm sentencing you to death. And his son, who is the attorney, walks up and says, Father, I agree with you. He is completely guilty. But I already paid his penalty. He is set free. That's the beauty of the resurrection. That's the advocate that we have. One that goes before his father and says, Oh, yep. The penalty has always already been paid. And it has been applied through grace. Hebrews 7.26 says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Romans 3.24-26 adds, Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It's Christ's righteousness that qualifies Him as our advocate and Savior. You see, the rightful penalty for sin is death. And in the resurrection, Christ overcomes that death. You see, on Friday, He took and He made penalty. He He took our penalty, which was death, and He bore the weight of all of humanity's sin upon Himself and dies for our sake. But if that was it, that was a one-time penalty that was paid for sin, and there was no life over death. But when Jesus rises again, He overcomes the power of sin and death and grants life to all who will believe. What does that mean? That means that we live eternally with Christ for all those who put their faith and trust in Jesus. It means that we no longer, if we put our faith and trust in Christ as the Lord of our life, 
It means that we no longer are slave to sin. But now that same resurrection power that rises Jesus from the dead is the same power that helps us overcome sin. We're no longer victims of that sin, powerless to that sin. The second aspect of the joy of Christ as our advocate, the first being that it's based on His righteousness and not our own, is that the atoning sacrifice on the cross appeases God's wrath for our sin. The atoning sacrifice on the cross appeases God's wrath for our sin. You see, the Scripture says that He is the propitiation of our, of our, of our sin. Now that word was the idea that this was a sacrifice that was offered in a pagan culture to the gods to appease wrath. Now some people don't like this word, but I think it's completely fitting. And I think it's biblical. And it really doesn't matter what we like. The, the truth is what he's saying is, is that God's response towards sin is wrath. And that that wrath has to be appeased. We have made God into our own image if the only part of God that we see is His love. Because God's response towards unrighteousness and unholiness is wrath. Oh, He's patient. But don't confuse that patience for His justice or for His righteousness. It is in His love that He demonstrates patience towards us. And it is His desire that none should perish. And therefore we should come to a place where we respond to the gospel. That's what John's pleading us with. Know that there is joy in the fact that Christ has atoned for our sin. He has appeased God's wrath. That should bring us joy. I think sometimes we hear that and we're like, okay, okay, but he's God. He can do what he wants. We wouldn't feel that way about other things, though. Right? I mean, if you were driving down the road and you got a speeding ticket for doing 85 or 90, and the cop says, hey, you need to go to court and deal with this. And you're like, oh, I don't want to go to court and deal with this garbage. I know I did it. But I don't want to pay the $500 fine that's going to come from it. And somebody comes down the road and sees you and you say, hey, I've got this, this penalty that I've got to pay. And the court's bad enough, but my parents are going to kill me or my spouse is going to kill me. And the person looks and says, hey, I will pay that for you. I will take care of that. I will make that right. We rejoice. The fact that Jesus appeases the wrath of God should cause us to rejoice. This is exciting. Colossians 1, 19-20 says, For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. 
Here's what Jesus did for you and I. He was forsaken by His own Father in the shedding of His blood for our sin. And His blood was offered up as the sacrifice to appease God's wrath. And we're told in this passage that it wasn't just for us, but it was for all the world. Not meaning that every person now is saved. What it means is that that grace is available to each of us. The only way to apply this sacrifice to your life is through the grace of God, is through faith. Romans 5, 6-10 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. Salvation. Experiencing God's grace. His sacrifice that appeases God's wrath being applied to your life comes through faith. Romans 10, 8 through 10 points out, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. We're confessing Jesus as Lord. It requires repentance and confession. Remember how we started this by saying it's not about your righteousness? Your works will never put you into relationship with God. Not lasting relationship. Your works are never enough to satisfy a holy and righteous God. The only thing that is enough to satisfy is one who is purely and completely perfectly righteous, and that is Jesus. And Jesus is the one who goes before us. He is the one who cleanses us. That's a message of hope for each of us. It is not based upon one good thing that we did or 15 great things. Isn't it great that it's based upon Jesus? Think about this for a minute. What if it was based on merit? And you stood before the Lord one day, and the Lord looked at you and said, you did 152,000 good things. But you did 152,001 evil things. Get away from me. Now that's implying that God's standard of righteousness is 50-50. God's standard for righteousness is 100%. And it has to be not in ourselves, but in Christ. And that is His grace. That's His mercy being displayed towards us. This week, or past week, we were in Washington, D.C. And we got a chance to go to the Bible Museum. And one of the things that I was deeply moved by was a, a room that was the very last room that we went into. And in that room was a, a, a small, what looked like kind of a, a living room area that had been set up. And in that living room area was all of the books of the Bible, all of the 
the different translations that have been done. So English, Spanish. This room was this kind of large, kind of round room. It had benches in the middle and seats in the middle and bookshelves all around the room. And it was broken off into sections. And in that section was one section that had those Bibles that had been translated into different languages. And a, a copy of a Bible from each language that had been translated. Now this comprised basically two bookshelves. The remainder of the room, which was probably close to the size of this lawn, with bookshelves all around it, were variations of different aspects of the Bible in different states of translation throughout the world. One section were clear cases of what were kind of supposed to be like books and with a maroon cover that said, In Process. In the next section over, it was five or fewer books that had been translated in that specific language. And then there was a section where it says, Not Even Attempted. Basically, if you were to take that room and break it apart, about a twelfth, one-twelfth of that room, of the languages that were all there, of all the known language that exists today in the world, one-twelfth of them had Scripture that was completed. Probably another, maybe one-sixth of that, or two-twelfths of that, was those that were in process. The remainder were five books of the Bible or less, or none at all. It was staggering to me. I thought of our missionaries like Marilyn Escher who are translating into the the language of Wolof and how she's been there 40 years translating, giving up her life to, to, to translate the Word of God into this language. Because she knows how important it is for people to know the grace of God. Their life's work, 40 plus years living in in Senegal, learning the language of Wallop and translating it. And Lisa and I found a picture of it right there, of in process. Took a little picture of it right there. It's one of the reasons that we're told in Romans 10, It says, how then will we call on him and who they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, but they have not obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. We live in a Western culture. The gospel will go forth in power when we proclaim it. And by looking at that room, that passage came alive. It was like, wow, most people will never see a written copy of Scripture in their life that fits in their language. But God has ordained His people to be the messengers of hope in proclaiming it to them. That's His call. And so because Christ has appeased God's wrath, our call is to then live proclaiming the truth of Christ. So, because our flesh wants to 
at times overpower us or overtake or fight for position, it's easy for those who believe in Christ to doubt that they truly belong to Him. And it's easy to think that you know Christ when you actually really don't. And so part of Christ's advocacy then is to give us confidence in truly knowing Him. And so confidence in truly knowing Him comes through the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. The other joy of Christ's advocacy is that confidence in truly knowing Him comes through the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. In verses 3 through 6, it says, And by this we know that we've come to know Him if we keep His commandments. By this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says He abides in Him ought to walk in the same manner in which He walked. Now John 14, 16 tells us, If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. That's what Jesus said. And then He went on and said, And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper. That word paraclete, advocate, to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. So here's the thing. Through the resurrection, when somebody comes to Christ through faith, Christ grants them His Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to live out His righteousness in their lives. The Holy Spirit is granted to those who believe on Christ for their salvation. And it is the Spirit who then bears testimony through His work in our lives so that we might confidently know that we're His. So, there's two ways that we see the evidence of the Holy Spirit's work. The first, he says, whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in Him, but whoever keeps His word in Him, truly the love of God is perfected. So what he's saying here is, lots of people know about Jesus. In fact, we have an entire dating system that's around the birth of Jesus. Right? People have thoughts and ideas. Some think he was a great moral teacher. Some believe that Jesus was a great prophet. But whatever you believe about Jesus and whatever you think Jesus to be, Jesus' own words were, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That's it. The only thing that you need to know about Jesus, the only thing that we need to know about Jesus, is that Jesus was not a relativist. He was not somebody that said, go find and pick the God that you want to serve. And Jesus was not just a man of morality or a great teacher. He claimed to be the Son of God and that the only way to the Father, to God, is through Him. And so He is exactly who He claimed to be, or He's not a good guy. But He can't be both. He can't be some variation that we want to make Jesus into. You either accept all of who He is, or you reject Him. And so confidence comes in truly knowing Him through the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. Because when we come to Christ, the Holy Spirit is granted to us, and we begin to move towards Him. What he's pointing out here is, you can say that I love Jesus, 
and walked in utter and complete disobedience. And his point is, there should be no confidence that you actually know Jesus. There should be no confidence that Jesus is living in you. There should be no confidence that you are secure in your relationship with God. If you're picking and choosing what you want to follow about Christ, if drunkenness is not a problem, if sexual immorality is not a problem for you, if if lying is not a problem, well, what I mean by that is if you're looking at those things and you're saying, ah, God doesn't care about those things, you're being deceived. And what he's talking about here is not that people won't sin. What he's saying is, is if you choose to enter into habitual and regular sin in this area, and this sin is mastering your life, there should be no confidence that Christ is living in you. So evidence of the Holy Spirit's work, then, is obedience to God's Word. The only way that we can obey Christ in the hard things is through the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, it's not worth it. You can try. You can do it for a week or two. You may not even get it for six months. But the truth is, is that obedience to the Word of God is actually evidence that His love is perfecting you and your love for God is being perfected. The second evidence of the Holy Spirit's work then, the first is that obedience to God's Word, which as Galatians 5 says, 22 through 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Sometimes we want to look for programs and things to, to say, hey, how is a person growing? What you ought to be looking for is growth in those things. In, in your own life, you know your heart. You can say, am I growing in these things? I, I can look at my own life and see how God has moved me to a person who, who, who loves, a person who has joy, a person who's grown in peace. Now, patience is still something God's working with, right? And I have to be honest. Faithfulness is something that God is still working with. I know those parts of my life that I know God is saying, hey, I want you to be more faithful in these areas. I, I know there's times that God wants me to be more gentle. But what I begin to see is that God is working in those, and God has taken areas of my life that were once completely unsubmitted to Him and now are beginning to be or are completely submitted to Him. The second evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit, then, is the submitting to Christ's example. Submitting to Christ's example. Sometimes it's easy to look at the Word of God and say, well, the Word of God... The Bible doesn't say not to do this, so I should chuck this. And maybe right now we can talk over the helicopter for a second. But the beauty is that the evidence actually bears it out in not just submission to his word, but submission to his example. And what's the difference there? The difference is, is that many of us, we can find it easy to be legalistic but not take the principles and example that Christ modeled. Let me give you an example. Jesus laid down his life for us. That's his example. He laid down his life for us. It, it, it ran through all of what he did. There are many times where we can look at situations and go, well, God doesn't explicitly tell me to do this. 
But the truth is, is we know that Christ would do it in those moments. We know how Christ would respond in those moments. And we can either choose to submit to it or run from it. God's desire for us is that we submit to His will, to His example. John 16, 13 says, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. You've been given a Holy Spirit, and His work in your life should give you security. If you don't see His work in your life, there shouldn't be security. And if you don't see obedience to Him or submission to His example, you shouldn't experience security. His point is this. The Holy Spirit's work in you will draw you towards Him. And when we are willingly choosing to go against God, we should never be secure. Security of salvation, as we speak about it, was meant for those who fell into sin and stood back up and started walking with Jesus. It was for this purpose. It was to point us to the fact that we have an advocate and that his sacrifice was once and for all for us. It is not to be an excuse for us to remain in sin. In fact, I would argue with you that John goes on in this epistle and makes it clear that unrepentant, habitual sin, there is no sacrifice for. There is no endurance and perseverance in Christ. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones summed this verse up in this way. He says, if you have the life, it is bound to show itself. And if it does not, then what you have not, the life. You cannot be receiving the life of Christ without becoming like Him. You cannot walk with God without keeping His commandments. You cannot know God without immediately, automatically loving Him. Love always manifests itself by doing what the object of its love desires. My hope today is is that we would rejoice over the resurrection knowing that we have an advocate. That that advocate goes before us and that we would no longer allow for those who have repented and believed on Christ past sin or even current failure to stop us from fulfilling the purpose that God has given us. For those who haven't put their faith and trust in Jesus, my hope is that this morning, and I guess it would be my pleading with you in the way that Jesus pleads on our behalf and pleads the same for each one of us, that you would repent and believe on Jesus for salvation. That you would experience His advocacy, and in His advocacy you would experience His joy, knowing that it's not your righteousness that makes you worthy, but it is His. And knowing that He has offered up a sacrifice that is sufficient for you, and He is just waiting for you to apply that sacrifice to your life through faith. So may it be for us today on this Easter that we rejoice in the fullness of who Jesus is. That His work was finished and is finished. 
and his sacrifice was once and for all, but that his work on our behalf continues today before the Father. Isn't that an awesome thing? That he stands before the Father, pleading on our behalf as our helper and as our comforter. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are our helper, our comforter, our defender. And thank you that through the resurrection, we get to experience joy. Joy like no other, because it is not based on what we've done, or who we are, or what's going on in our own life, or what we think may prevent us from experiencing your blessing, your truth, your security. But God, may we humble ourselves. God, may you humble us to see that it is your work, your righteousness, your sacrifice that has redeemed us and that it can be applied through faith as we surrender to our lives to you and grow through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we ask these things in your name.